0: Your Bibles to Revelation chapter three. Revelation chapter three. Before December, you know, came we were going through the seven churches in Revelation, and then the Lord just put upon my heart to just to do Christmas messages all through the month of December up to Christmas, and uh, after that we'd go back to we finish up the last two churches in uh, the book of Revelation, and we're going to look at chapter three verses seven through thirteen this morning. Uh, the, the church at Philadelphia, the faithful church. But I'm going to quickly kind of review the, the first five churches that we looked at. And then we'll look at the uh, chapter, um, and we'll look at these verses this morning with the church at Philadelphia. But the church in Ephesus, uh, the first one that we looked at. The church of Ephesus pictures the early decline of lively Christianity at the close of the first century. That is... The loss of its first love. And as I had mentioned at the time, they didn't lose their love, basically. The word "loss," you know, uh, or, or left. It, it did not mean they, they lost their first love. They didn't lose it. They neglected their relationship with Jesus Christ. They didn't go off on the doctrine. They were fine with the word, but they just kind of neglected that relationship with Jesus Christ, their first love. Uh, the church in Smyrna describes the period of persecution in the 2nd and 3rd centuries. The church in Pergamus describes the union of church and state under Constantine in the 4th fir- century with its following uh, religious and moral corruption. The church in Thyatira describes the domination of the Roman hierarchy from the 5th to the 15th centuries. The church in Sardis points to the days of Reformation in the 16th century when Jesus said a few names had not defiled their garments. Now the church in Philadelphia here speaks of a period, that is a time of orthodoxy, when they stuck to the word of God and a time of evangelism by leaders like John Wesley and George Whitfield in the 18th century. And at that time, all the nations of the world presented open doors to, For the receiving of the gospel. Only two out of the seven churches were living and serving in such a way that they didn't get any rebuke. You know, an open rebuke from the Lord. And both of these churches were small and weak in the eyes of the Lord. The first was Smyrna. A church that was going through terrible persecution because of their testimony. They were being a tremendous witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. The last church was Philadelphia. That is a church that was keeping a faithful witness as well in the middle of just total apostasy and unbelief. So let's begin now in chapter 3, beginning with uh, verse 7a. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write these things, says he who is holy. The address now is... That is the message that this was given to, that Jesus gave this to. It's a church that was faithful to Jesus and God's word. The city of Philadelphia is called today Alice Her. Alice Her. It's located in Lydia, about 28 miles southeast of Sardis. And it was named after a king of Pergamus named uh, Attalus Philadelphius, who built the city. The word Philadelphia, as many of you know, means brotherly love. You know, Philadelphia, PA, you know, it's called the city of brotherly love. But, you know, a lot of people say there's not a lot of brotherly love there anymore. But nonetheless, that's what it means. Brotherly love is an important quality of the Christian. We, loving one another. Man, that's, again, an important quality of the Christian. We are taught by God many times to love one another but loving god and the brethren isn't enough we also have to law to love a lost world and we need to try to reach them with the gospel and i would i'm praying and and i pray that you might pray that that would be maybe at the top of our list of, of things that maybe we we want to do for the lord this year but you know as far as a church and and individually you know let's really pray that we would get the gospel out to a lost world whether you know however we do that individually with our our neighbors our friends or however that might be but to get the word of jesus christ out you know, and, and to reach them with the gospel. This, this, this church, Philadelphia here, it had a vision to reach a lost world with the gospel. And because this was their vision, God gave them an open door to do that. The city of Philadelphia had a long history and several times it was almost totally destroyed by earthquakes. The most recent rebuilding after an earthquake was in AD 17. And the area around Philadelphia was rich in in agricultural... It had a rich agricultural value, you know, farming. But it also had clear signs that there was volcanic action before this. Grapes were one of the main crops. And uh, Dionysus, was one of the main objects of worship. It was also called Little Athens because there were so many temples in the city... Through the centuries, a, so, uh, a so-called Christian community continued in this city, and they pro- they prospered under Turkish rule. But all the, all the Christians left the city of Greece after World War One. So the message that's directed to the Church of Philadelphia it's kind of unusual because it's a, a it's mostly a a word of praise, like the one given to the Church at Smyrna. But there's a pretty clear difference compared to the messages given to Sardis and Laodicea let's look at the part the second part of verse 7 I'll just read the whole thing right again and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things notice says he who is holy he who is true he who has the key of David he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one so no one opens this gives us the author of the message the one that says, he who is holy, he who is true, he was the key to David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. You know, the author of the message, the letter that's directed to the angel of the church of Philadelphia, starts with a description of the character of Jesus that's to be loved. You know, it says, he who is holy. Literally meaning the holy. It's a name for deity. It's the same as saying, he is God. And of, and of course he is. Jesus is God. Jesus is holy in his character. Jesus is holy in his words. Jesus is holy in his behavior and he's holy in his purposes. Everything he says, does, and, and wants to do is holy. And because Jesus is the holy one, he's like no one else. Jesus is set apart from anything else and anyone else. There's nothing or no one that could be compared to Jesus Christ. His character, in verse 7, is shown here. It's shown as holy. No man ever came to this earth so completely and undeniably pure and holy as Jesus was. Jesus was separate from sinners. He didn't ignore them. He ministered to them, he loved them, but he was separate from sinners. None of his his most hateful contemporaries could convict him of sin. None of those that hated him so much could say he had ever done anything wrong or committed any sin. In 1 John 3, 5, John says, in him that is in Jesus Christ, there is no sin. In Luke 23, 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. Judas, after he betrayed Jesus, cried out in Matthew 27, 4, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. Jesus truly was the holy, the harmless, the undefiled Son of God. And his spotless and unquestionable holiness is a most undeniable argument for the holiness of his gospel. Verse 7 says, He who is true. You know, it it speaks of the true. He is true in the highest sense of the word. He's true in his emotion. In other words, all of his sympathies, his compassion, his kindness, his love, um, it's all true. It's not fake. It's not put on. He didn't have to, you know, he didn't have to, to build it up or conjure it up. And they were all in accord with his eternal reality. That is, who he was in heaven is who he is on earth. He wasn't one thing in heaven that came here and showed us something else. There was no contradiction in his life. He was never changing. He was true in his speech and what he said. Everything he said was in exact agreement with the way he lived. There was no contradiction in his life. He was true in character. No change from the earthly to the eternal. He, he says, "You know that was." He says, "That's my purpose for being born. My purpose for coming into the world, to be to bear witness to the truth, to show you what the truth is in words and in deed." He came. He lived, and is present in the world's history. You know, in the middle of a world of dishonesty, he came and he lived. And he's present. You know, he's like the bright shining noonday sun in the middle of a a cloudy day. Now the Greek word for true here in verse 7, it means true, it means in the sense of real, it means ideal, it means genuine. Jesus was the real deal. Jesus Christ, the head of the church, is set apart right off the bat here in verse 7. Absolute holiness. And by absolute holiness, <clears throat> by absolute truth, he's everything that he said he was. He's everything that he claims to be. And he fulfills the principles, you know, that he, that he, that he, that he holds out. And he fulfills the hopes that he inspires. Jesus is the original. He's not a replica of anything. He's not an imitation. He's not a copy or reproduction. He is the real God and not a made-up one. Now, in his day, there were hundreds of false gods and goddesses, but only Jesus Christ could rightfully claim to be the true God. And because Jesus is holy And because he is true, it makes him qualified to call the Christians of Philadelphia to a life of faith in him and a matching life of holiness. Like Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.15, But as he who called you is holy, notice, you also be holy in all of your conduct. 1 John 2.6, He who says he abides in him, that is in Christ, ought himself also to walk just as he walked. You know, if we claim to abide in Christ and he abides in us, then we ought to walk just as Jesus walked. No ands, ifs, or buts. Because he is the one who is true. Jesus is the author of truth. He is truth. He cannot lie. And he's contrary to all error or false doctrine. And in the middle of so much that's false today and perverted, Jesus himself stands alone as the one who is completely true. He said, I am the truth. I am the truth. You want to know truth? Get to know Christ. The character of the person of Christ, together with this holiness mentioned mentioned earlier in the verse, it brings out that great truth That right doctrine and right living go together. In other words, you can't say one thing and live something else. You can't go to church on Sunday and be something else on Monday. You are what you say you are. The word of God and holy living must go together. There cannot be any holiness without truth. Not only is Jesus holy and true, but he's described as the one here in verse 7 who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one close, opens. This is quoted from Isaiah twenty-two twenty-two, And it was speaking of Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. It's recorded that the key of the house of David, I will lay on his shoulder so he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. You see, Eliakim had the key to all the treasures of the king. Notice the picture here. He had all the the key to all the treasures of the king. And when he opened the door, it was opened. And when he closed the door, it was closed. The key is the symbol of authority. Eliakim was presented to the people as a type of the coming Messiah. Who has the key to truth and holiness as well as opportunity, service and testimony. And Jesus assures the church of Philadelphia that was surrounded by heathens and wickedness that he has the power to open and close according to his sovereign will. Jesus exercises authority in heaven and earth. Verse 8, look at verse 8 through 10 now. Jesus says, "I know your works, See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you because you have kept my command to preserve, uh, to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Now here's the, the commendation by Jesus to the church at Philadelphia. Jesus says to the church at Philadelphia, like he did to the other churches, I know your works. He sees what we do, and he sees why we do it. He knows the motivation of our heart. But this is the only letter where he doesn't describe their works. But it's clear that whatever their works were, Jesus was pleased with them. And the reason that that, that the church at Philadelphia, the reason their works please the Lord, is that they were done with a heart attitude. Not many times like, oh, I have to do this, or, you know, this is my week to usher, or my week to sing, or it's my week to do, what, you know, it's my, you know, it's not like I have to, or it's a duty. They had it, uh, it's an attitude of the heart. Heart attitude. And that's how we're to come to Christ. And that's how we're to serve Christ. With a loving attitude with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and strength. They came and and they did the, the things that they did for Jesus, the attitude of heart and a life that found strength only in Jesus. It's faith only in his word. And it's very, it's the very basis for existence only in his name. Jesus said, see, I have set before you an open door. Literally, a door which has been opened and remains open. Jesus will not open a door that we're not going to go through. He's not just going to open doors if we're not going to go through them. The figure of an open door was familiar to the first century Christians. Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14.27 reported to Antioch that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 69, a great door, an effective door, has been opened to me. Later on, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2.12, furthermore, when I came to Troas to preach, the, to preach Christ's gospel, and a door was opened to me by the Lord. He asked the Colossians in Colossians 4.3 to pray that God would open to us a door for the word. You see, the open door suggests an opportunity for missionary work. But now the church at Philadelphia was called to a more important kind of missionary work, which was spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in a sense, we are all called to be missionaries. Whether it's across the ocean, whether it's in the neighborhood, whether it's in our home or our workplace, we're called to be missionaries. Missionaries to spread the word of Jesus Christ, to share the gospel. But it's his church, it's Christ's church, and Jesus decides where and when his people serve. He gave the church of Philadelphia a wonderful opportunity to serve. And no one could shut that door or stop that opportunity. No human or demonic power could close that door. But were they able to do the job? Could they get the job done? Could they do it? Because Jesus said, notice, the first problem was they had a little strength. They had a little strength. So the church was evidently small and it was weak. But here's the thing it was faithful. It was faithful. It's not that the church still has a little strength itself. So it can still function to some degree. You see, it wasn't, you know, begin because uh, it had a little strength. And because it had that little strength, that many it could still, no. This means it must depend totally on the Lord Jesus for its strength. Paul says in 2 Corinthians twelve nine, my strength is made perfect in weakness. You see, Jesus has an affinity for weakness. He looks to those who are weak and know it. Lord, I can't do this on my own. I don't have the strength to to overcome right now. I don't have the... And this is when Jesus comes. That's why Paul said, I rejoice in my weakness. Because I know I can't do it, but I know that Jesus can. Even though I'm weak. He is strong. It's not my wealth that gets the job done. It's not my influence. It's not gimmicks to get people to come to church. It's not the eloquence of the preacher. It's not the beautiful songs and the voices and the instruments and the, that, that, that you know are played so well that, that make it an effective ministry. It's only the Lord alone who opens the door. So the Lord, and it's only the Lord that gives the increase. He does it all. We just get to be, you know, participants in it. A church like Philadelphia also kept the word of God. They guarded the word. They kept the truth of God. You see, they were true to God's word. There's a lot of pressure to reject his word. To distort his word, to water it down, to dilute it, to treat his word as symbolic. Oh well, you know, this is this is a symbol of this, and or you know, it's you know, or or, or even ignore God's word. These have always been and still are great pressures. To just, you know, whatever you reject, distort, dilute God's word. And many believers have today rejected his word or they've diluted it. Or don't take it for what it says. And many have compromised their witness throughout the centuries by giving into these pressures precious today for for you know unbiblical lifestyles and you know and just a lot of things that that the world says are okay and laws are passed and and the people say well you know it must be okay we need to check God's word to find out if it's okay there's a lot of things that goes on in this world that are not okay according to God's word Today, the church is bombarded with so many compromises that create those pressures. And a lot of churches today have given into them in one way or another. And God's word is full of warnings against compromise. Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.20, guard what was committed to your trust, Timothy. 2 Timothy 1.13, Paul said to Timothy, hold fast the pattern of sound words, Timothy. You know, he was encouraging Timothy, hang in there. You know, don't, you know, protect the word of God. Hold on to the word of God. In Jude 3, Jesus said, contend earnestly for the faith. Colossians one twenty three, Paul said, continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast. Because when a church starts to handle God's word loosely, or deceitfully, it won't be long before that church, will deny the name of Jesus. You see, the name of a person stands for their character, their position, their work, and everything that they say and do and is. Jesus's formal name, you could say, according to Acts 2.36, the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. But let's break it down. The name of Jesus... Jesus means salvation. Jesus means salvation. And one who honors this name accepts the great salvation that Jesus provided by taking our place on the cross for our sins. Now the the name Christ. Christ means the anointed one. And one who, one who honors the name Christ, the anointed one, acknowledges his person. That is, his threefold distinction as God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. And then Lord is a title. One who honors him as Lord believes and obeys his word. You see, you can't call him your Lord, my Lord, if I don't believe and obey the scriptures. I can't. Contradiction. He's my Lord. Therefore, I must do what he says. I must believe what he says. And those who honor Jesus Christ as Lord and believe and obey his word, they're not afraid to tell people. They're not afraid to make a confession. Yes, I'm a Christian. They're not afraid to trust in Him and they're not afraid to bear His name. Jesus said to these who have a little strength, He said, You have a little strength, but you keep His word and you acknowledge my name. And because they did, Jesus gave them a wonderful assurance of an open door that nobody could close. Because you see, if Jesus opened the door for them, Jesus would make sure, he would see to it that they were able to walk through it. Now, on the other hand, to those who trust in their own strength, and their own cleverness, and their own influence, they deny his strength. Well, you know, I'm strong. I'm clever. I'm whatever. I, you know, I, I, you know, I can take care of myself. I don't need God. I don't need a savior. So they deny his strength, his word, and his name. They deny his word and his name because they're clever. They're strong. And the doors that they managed to force open will soon be shut. Because you see, there are always other men that have greater power and cleverness and they're more important than you. And because they haven't denied his name, Jesus promises that their enemies who are described as the synagogue of Satan will be forced to admit that the Philadelphian church, hey, these were really true servants of God. I mean, I can't think of anything better to, to be called than true servants of God. And I would pray when you know, people that know us and, and are around us and you know they, 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 they would say those those people over there at the corners, they they are true servants of God. They really live what they believe. And, and when Jesus here, the synagogue of Satan and to those who, who say they are Jews um, who are not, th- this is in reference to the unbelieving Jews who are against the witness of the gospel in Philadelphia. And they're the ones who made it hard for the Christians to, to, to have a good testimony before the pagan world. This world, you know, alone makes it hard to... to have a good testimony before this world. And the most hardened enemies of, of the Church of Jesus Christ were the Jews at this time. We read about them in Thessalonians and Smyrna, and we hear about them here in Philadelphia. And in every case, the most hostile and resentful against Christians the Jews. In Palestine, they were the only persecutors of the church, and elsewhere. And if they didn't directly oppose the gospel, they wanted they, they instigated others to do it. But those in the church today who are going through such affliction or persecution, you can be sure that no matter how strong, those who come against you are. And no matter how non-stop, how continual their efforts are to stop you and hinder the work of God, you will win in the end for the cause of Christ. Because Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against him, his church. And because the church of Philadelphia kept his word, look at the end there, verse um, verse 10. He said, oh, well, let's look at, start with verse 10. Because you have kept my command to persevere. Notice, here it is. I will also keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. He tells the church of Philadelphia, because you guys have, have kept my word, I'm going to keep you from the great tribulation. I'm going to keep you out of the great tribulation. A promise that the church will not go through the great tribulation but will be taken to heaven before it begins by way of the rapture. And a promise to us that our Lord will see us through any time of testing. And we have been, I believe, this year through a time of testing. The church and many people in the church Men who have lost loved ones because of the pandemic, lost jobs, uh, their businesses, maybe their homes. But many have lost a lot and have been tested severely. But He promises us that He will see us through any time of testing if we hold on and we keep our eyes on him. I'm not saying it makes it easy cuz it doesn't. But it is possible cuz he says so. And I know and, and you know and you know I believe that God's word is is it says that we will not go through the great tribulation though there are, there are different ideas about that. Some say we will. But God says we are not appointed unto wrath. And, he, and the great tribulation is God's wrath. It's his judgment against those who reject Jesus Christ. But we're not appointed unto wrath. But to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Verse 11. Behold, Jesus, I am coming Quickly. Notice, hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. Here's the exhortation to the Philadelphian church. Jesus, behold, I am coming quickly, you guys. This would strengthen what he said in verse 10. It would strengthen that view. He said, I'm coming quickly, so hold fast to what you have. Don't let anything or anyone take your crown. Jesus is coming to every man, every woman, and he's coming soon, whether it's the rapture of the church or our departure by death. He's coming either way. When Jesus comes, there's a crown for him or her. And if they faithfully hold on to the true and the right... There's a crown. The reference here, when he speaks of the crown, is to the public games of Greece, where the the winner would win a crown of, of leaves. But what is that crown of leaves compared to the crown that Jesus refers to here? An everlasting crown. But the warning here is against failing in the race of life. That Paul says, "Hey, I have run the race, man. I've kept the, I've kept the faith. I've run the race. I hung in there to the end." The warning here is feeling is against failing in the race of life, and as a result, losing the victor's crown. Although the Philadelphians were faithful, there's always the danger of backsliding, especially when a, a person is facing you know, just ongoing opposition and trials and testings. And and, and this is why he gives the reason here, hold fast, cling to, hang on to for dear life. And that's why Jesus said, those who endure to the end shall be saved. Enduring is not the means of salvation. Enduring is the evidence that I am saved. And some people think, oh, well, you, you, you can't drift away from Jesus. Oh, I'm going to go by what the scripture says. Hebrews ten thirty nine. Paul's warning was, the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, notice, draws back, he's talking about, anybody draws back from me, my soul has no pleasure in him. I, I, I don't want to be in that position. Anybody draws back from me, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 12. He who overcomes, notice, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which, which comes down out of heaven from my God. And I will write on him my new name name here's the reward for holding fast not only are the believers at Philadelphia promised a crown but they're almost promised to be made pillars in the temple figuratively speaking that means they'll still be standing when everything else falls if they overcome if they overcome enduring to the end Hebrews tells us we are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And this earthly place is, is, is going to be shaken and is being shaken. But only those who are holding fast are going to be standing after the shaking is done. The people experienced earthquakes in Philadelphia during those times. And usually all that would be left standing were the pillars of the buildings. You can go see a lot of the old ancient ruins in many cities and what's left standing are the pillars. The Christians at Philadelphia are assured of continuance throughout eternity because of their faith in Jesus Christ who is the one who enables them to overcome the world. And when it says here in verse 12 that that he shall go out no more, this seems to mean that they will no longer be exposed to the temptations and the trials of this present life. And they'll have their dwelling in the very presence of God. Because, number one, it says here in verse 12, they will have the name of God. This speaks of total consecration of God. Second, they will have the name of the city of God. Which is, the, which is total citizenship in the heavenly city. The new Jerusalem that's going to come down. And third, they will have, Jesus said, a new name. Belonging to Christ. This will be a a fuller knowledge of Christ at the second coming. Those who are like the Christians in the Philadelphian church are faithful in their testimony and they're sure in their salvation. And those who are faithful in their testimony and those who are sure in their salvation are promised these truths. These eternal truths who receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. As they have been faithful in receiving grace, the grace of God in, in this present age, they will also be rewarded by God with the, with the fulfillment, complete fulfillment of their salvation in eternity. Let's close with verse 13. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just like the other messages, I'm sorry, just like the messages to the other churches, the Church of Philadelphia is given the invitation to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The challenge is, the challenge goes out to all who hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. The challenge is to receive Jesus as their Lord. And after receiving Him, to be a faithful witness for the Lord, which will confirm their salvation and their possession of eternal life with God. You know, when a person says they've received Christ, you know, they, they've made a profession of faith, but you know what? Their, their, their life confirms that profession. As we said earlier, the, the profession and, and the life must match. That, that's the evidence. And when you saw, you know, many of the examples in, in the scriptures in the New Testament of people who received the Lord there were dynamic changes they they left the old life and began new so there is a change there is there is evidence of salvation and like those in philadelphia they can think not just about what's going on now it, it, you know deliverances now, but future deliverances from this world, and they can enjoy all the privileges here and of eternity in eternity, because of what the Lord provided. I mean, He's given us everything we need here to live for him and to overcome. And in eternity, we will receive the fullness of that. Father, we thank you again for this passage, Lord. We thank you for the example of the Philadelphian church, Lord. The faithful church. Father, may we have that title as well, God. The faithful church. Father, may what we say match what we do. God, may there be living evidence Of true salvation. May our life. May our words be true. Because Jesus Christ is the truth. May we live as he lives. And if you're here this morning. Or you're outside. Or you're watching. At home. And the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart. And you know that you. You know that you know that you must receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. We want to help you to do that. I'm going to say this prayer out loud. And you repeat it. To the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow You all the days of my life. And thank You, Lord, for dying on the cross for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you said that,